And that's kind of where the human aspect of this comes in. They're, they're trying anything they can to save the people that trusted them. Um, and we're, we're trying to help with that. It's just um, there's only so much that, that we can do. Good morning. This is Deconstruct, a podcast from The Real Deal. It's Monday, October 30th, and I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. So if you thought we were done talking about distress, you were wrong. I don't think we'll ever be done talking about distress in the commercial market. Yeah, well, not in this cycle, as long as rates stay up. So we've spent a good amount of time dissecting the office market, and those borrowers aren't necessarily being hit by rising rates. A lot of the office owners I've seen who are struggling borrowed with fixed rate debt um, when rates were, you know, pretty reasonably low. Right. Their problem has really been occupancy. It's the pandemic story. No one wants to be in the office anymore, so no one's signing leases. And of course, higher rates will be a problem when loans come due and these borrowers have to refinance their debt. But for another subset of borrowers, higher interest rates have been really disastrous. And those are multifamily investors. Many borrowed with floating rate debt from 2021 into early 2022. Fast forward to the fourth quarter of 2023, where we are now, and Rates are five percentage points higher than they were less than two years ago. And that rise has thrown a giant wrench in these investors' plans to fix up value-add buildings, so renovate and raise rents, and then disseminate the returns to their investors. This is a very specific portion of the multifamily investment market, specifically syndicators or investors that pool money from smaller investors. Right. And the problem is this frenzy to invest when rates were low pushed a lot of borrowers to to acquire properties with floating rate debt. And now distress is roiling that market. And some expect it to get worse. So we're talking with Brian Underdahl today. He's a data wonk, the chief analytics officer at Nouveau Capital Partners, which is a firm that invests in CRE deals. A few months ago, Nouveau spun off a fund to address these distressed deals. And Underdahl says Nouveau has been inundated with demand. He doesn't expect the scores of investors coming to him for help to abate anytime soon. But first, let's get into our news recap. Huge news out of New York City last week. Silverstein Properties is replacing its longtime CEO, Marty Berger. Larry Silverstein has replaced Berger with his own daughter, Lisa Silverstein. I'd encourage listeners to revisit our interview with Larry. It kicked off our season in August. So he did not disclose succession plans, but he did emphasize his family ties. Also worth noting that he is 92 years old. And despite that, he said he would never step away from the firm. Yes. What was the quote? It was like, what would I do with myself? Something like that. Berger had been Silverstein's CEO since 2010 and started by sharing the role with Larry for three years. So needless to say, this is a huge shakeup. A day after the Silverstein news, we got more succession news out of New York. Right. So developer Bill Rudin is turning the family firm over to his two children, and that will happen at the start of next year. Samantha Rudin Earls, who is 39, and Michael Rudin, who's a year younger, will both ascend to the roles of CEO at Rudin Management. So Bill is currently the CEO, and he will continue as a co-chair of the company. So just another instance of keeping it all in the family. Also out of New York last week, I think we finally have an end to the Flatiron saga. 
Right. So the iconic building is officially being turned into condos. The Brodsky organization has acquired a stake in the landmark and is partnering on the new condo plans with the other owners. Those are Jeff Garal's GFP Real Estate, Sorgente Group, ABS Partners, and investor Nathan Silverstein. I can't believe there's finally a definitive plan in place for the Flatiron. There were so many twists and turns to this. First, the building went up for auction after the owners, the ones you just mentioned, couldn't actually decide what to do with the property. Then the infamous investor, Jacob Garlic, placed a winning bid and then failed to put down a deposit. So a new auction was announced and Garal's group placed the final winning bid of $161 million. I mean, what a circus, right? When he won the bid, Garal did say he was going to try and figure out a way to convert the building into residential or at least some of it. So we sort of saw this coming. I'm so curious what this floor plans will look like since the front corner is so skinny. Yeah, we should. Um, who's that guy on Twitter who sort of analyzes floor plans? I feel like he would be a good one to touch base on for this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So on to our distress news item of the day. Isabella, you had a story about Blackstone writing down its stake in an office campus in L.A. So what happened there? Yeah, Blackstone, quote, completely wrote off its investment in Playa District, a roughly 1.4 million square foot complex near LAX. It said it started writing down the value of the property three years ago and completely wrote it off earlier this year, given the challenges facing the property. Got it. Okay. And how much did Blackstone pay for the complex? $583 million in 2016. Blackstone bought it through a fund, so it's unclear how much the firm's stake actually was, but it's definitely a notable purchase. Occupancy at the property has been dipping since then. It was 82% leased in 2016 and is now about 70% leased. And I assume there's debt there. Yeah, about $482 million from Deutsche Bank and a group of other lenders. Blackstone is now working with their lenders to figure out what to do with the loan. But one source told me that there's no plans to sell the building, at least not immediately. Also in L.A., a judge has thrown out two challenges to the city's controversial transfer taxes. As a reminder, the transfer taxes, also known as Measure ULA, came into effect on April 1st, and they added a 4% tax on sales of commercial and residential real estate above $5 million, and 5.5% on deals above $10 million. Right. Are there any challenges remaining? So there is a proposition on the ballot next year that relates to Measure ULA. It will ask voters whether the state should create a new rule that any local special tax increases have to be approved by a two-thirds majority vote, not a simple majority. Since Measure ULA was passed with a simple 50 percent majority, if that rule passes, it will essentially invalidate the transfer taxes. And one final item, staying on the political front, New York State has capped rents on Frankenstein apartments. So explain what a Frankenstein unit is. Yes. So I actually think we coined this term. But basically, a landlord with two empty units, typically rent stabilized, will decide to merge them together. Got it. So what are the new rules there? Sure. So until now, landlords have been able to combine units and set a brand new rent, which is a huge deal for rent-stabilized apartments because after the 2019 rent law passed, basically all routes to raise rent were capped. Um, so revenues have stayed flat. So this was sort of that one means of increasing revenues that owners counted on sometimes. 
Now, initial rents on rent-stabilized units are capped at whatever the combined rent for the previous unit was. So there's less room for an increase there. Interesting. It seems like that really disincentivizes landlords to create these sorts of units. So from one multifamily market to another, we're turning to our chat with Brian Underdahl, Chief Analytics Officer at Nouveau Capital Partners. His firm is addressing the distress that's playing out across large swaths of the Sun Belt and Southeast for multifamily owners. So I wanted to start with just asking you a bit about the trends you've seen in the multifamily lending space over the past few years. Obviously, we had this huge disruption during COVID. So I guess you could talk about you know, how deals were getting done maybe in 2020 and how that sort of changed in 2021, 2022. 2020 and prior to 2020, uh, it was very common to have uh, fixed rate debt, Fannie, Freddie, agency debt. And of course, interest rates were, were fairly low then too. Um, and then we can talk about why this happened. But uh, in 2021, 2022, there was a big switch from agency debt, fixed rate to private lenders and bridge debt uh, on floating rates. And uh, I mean, it, it literally flipped. So if it was 80, 20, agency before that, now it's more like 2080 agency. So the majority of loans that were being done in 2021 and 2022 were, were bridge debt. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about why that happened? And also, you know, was there a tipping point when you were like, oh, this is like nearly all I'm seeing at this point? Yeah, we definitely noticed it towards the end of 2020. Um, the tipping point, I, I mean, all of 2021, end of 2021 and into 2022, even all the way up until uh, Fed hikes in, in middle of 22, uh, that was where it really flipped to where every loan was was bridge. Um, the majority of the ones that we were seeing or underwriting in 2021, they weren't even talking about uh, rate caps. So it was bridge debt without a rate cap. Some some had a, a rate cap on there, but um, yeah, that's that's where we kind of thought, oh oh boy. Um, this is uh, has potential for for some real problems down the road. Explain to us what a rate cap is. Most of our listeners will know. You know, my understanding is that if you're getting an agency loan, you need a rate cap. Like that's required. But with some of these private lenders, that's not the case. Is that accurate? Yes, for the most part, that's that's accurate. Um, so a rate cap is essentially when you go get a multifamily loan. The majority of the time, it's based off of SOFR, uh, the secured overnight financing rate, or offered rate. Excuse me, um, and they uh, will tie your mortgage payment, your your interest rate to SOFR. And usually it's SOFR plus some spread that the bank needs to make. So uh, let's say SOFR plus 325, meaning you, you tack on three and a quarter to whatever SOFR is, and that's your interest rate. Um, and so that's where interest rates were in 2021. And banks would offer, uh, or, or you could secure a rate cap that said, so for, if SOFR goes over this amount, my loan is guaranteed not to go over whatever that amount is. The strike uh, is what it's referred to. So if you had a, a 2% and SOFR went up to 2, your your 325 on top of SOFR would now be 525. Um, and so in 2021, it was very inexpensive to get those rate caps. You know, you might pay $10,000, $20,000 for a, for a good rate cap. And that completely shifted after the, the Fed started hiking. Um, because SOFR kind of went out of control too. So uh, agency lenders, uh, by by um, 
their very nature are more conservative for the most part than bridge lenders. And so they require those rate caps because they want to make sure that the deal still makes sense for you and that they'll continue to get paid. The deal can, can function. Um, bridge lenders, uh, on the other hand, tend to be a bit more aggressive with lending standards um, and don't always require those, those caps. So as bridge lenders became more and more prominent and, and even the majority of loans that were being made, uh, they weren't necessarily requiring caps. And to a lot of operators' credit, uh, the Fed was telegraphing that rates would stay low for a lot longer than they actually did. So people didn't see the need to buy a rate cap, even though they were incredibly affordable. It just wasn't on many people's minds that rates are going to skyrocket from here. So we know that there was a switch to bridge debt um, in 2021 into 2022. Why did everyone go to you know shorter term floating rate loans? I mean, I, to put my econ hat on here, it, it's really a supply demand issue, and, and we can talk about what what causes each of those. But essentially, there was more and more demand for multifamily properties, um, and so the supply was was shrinking, and uh, the prices were getting bid up, and the agency debt wouldn't lend as much on those properties, but bridge lenders would. They had a much more aggressive risk appetite. Um, so the bridge lenders, if you're competing for a property, and this this happened an awful lot in 2021, um, you, you know, you come in with your offer, but you have 20 other operators that are bidding on the same property. So you have, then they ask for their best and final. And by the time it gets to that final round of best and final, the property price may be 5 million more. Let's call it a $20 million property. If that's where the ask was, now it might be 25 million. But the agency debt was still stuck at their whatever amount they agreed to loan you when you made the offer, whereas the bridge lenders would continuously raise their loan amount as the price got bid up. On top of that, the agency may be 60, 70 percent loan to value. The bridge lenders were willing to loan at much higher LTVs. So I've seen 80 percent was standard uh, in 2021, 2022 beginning of 22. And, and then on top of that, you might stack, they might stack a, a MES debt on top of that to cover the CapEx, or maybe the bridge lender was willing to lend the, the CapEx budget on top of the 80% loan to value. So in reality, you might have gone in with closer to 95% wow. leverage at an inflated price of, so that, that was really what drove, I think the, the shift from agency to to bridge is you you couldn't you couldn't make a deal happen unless you were using bridge debt. And so I feel like this you know that elevated LTV um, sort of plays into this question. But you teased that when you were seeing these loans being made, you were like, there, this doesn't look like it'll pan out well, or I'm sort of skeptical of this. What tipped you off to that? A lot of it was the underwriting that we were looking at. So we we looked at you know hundreds of deals uh, throughout a month and and. All of them, not I shouldn't say all of them, a lot of them just had very aggressive underwriting assumptions, meaning, yeah, rents increased 10% last year, but I don't think they're going to increase 10% again, and then 7% after that, and, and 7% after that. Um, and so that was really the thing. It's, it's they, I, I believe what was happening is that the, the operators were finding out what they had to pay to get the property, getting the property, and then kind of backing into the underwriting. How, how high does rent have to go in order for this deal to still make sense for us to you know, send out a mid-teens IRR or whatever it may be? Um, and so it, the underwriting was kind of wrong. It, it just felt like a lot of the deals were they, they put the numbers in that made the deal make sense. And not, I don't mean that 
they were being nefarious. It's just the, the, the nature of it. They, they had to do another deal and that's how you can make the deal pencil. Right. And you mentioned syndicators. Tell us what a syndicator is and is are those the sponsors on the majority of deals that you were looking at? Sure. So a syndicator is essentially a person or a company that, that wants to buy, let's just for our example, say an apartment complex. Um, they may not have the, the capital themselves to buy it outright, even with, a, with lending. Um, and so they will pool together uh, other investors that are interested in investing in the property with them. And they use that pooled capital to put down the down payment um, or the uh, you know capital expenditure budget, uh, basically all the expenses, whatever is needed to, to buy the property, they pull that together from other investors. And then typically the sponsor or all the time will operate that property um, with the investors that they raise the money from being passive investors, where they're just trusting the, the sponsor to, to operate the property um, like an investment manager. You opened a fund, your firm opened a fund recently to target the distress that you're seeing in the market. So talk about what that looks like. And I know, you know, we've chatted before and you said that it seemed like you were sort of like looking at these deals and you were like, something seems amiss. And then it was like more and more deals that you were seeing and you were like, all right, this is a trend. Yeah, that's right. So uh, early 2022 was when it was just like, oh, goodness, we, we can't do any deals right now. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And I guess maybe late 2021. And, uh, and then I would say right around maybe a month after Fed rates or Fed started hiking rates. So let's, let's call it June or July, the deal flow just stopped. So we, we were, we had a fund of funds model and, and we're essentially investing passively in, in operators across the country and it, everything just kind of shut off all at the same time. And I think that's when we people started to realize, oh, rates are going up and the Fed's saying they're going to continue to go up. And, and that's where obviously we decided we weren't going to do any more deals, but also we started wondering what's going to happen to all these floating rate bridge loans that are out there. Because um, we knew that they were moving hand in hand with as the Fed increased rates. And, and uh, so that's essentially, we started to put together a thesis that, okay, there's going to be an awful lot of properties out there with floating rate bridge debt where we know for a fact because we underwrote it if rates go up three percentage points this deal doesn't make sense anymore um, to the extent that it's actually going to be losing money not not making any money uh, much less you know covering the debt payment um, and that's that's where the I guess inception of this came from was okay well then they're, they're gonna need some help and we talked about rescue capital, preferred equity model, even we even, you know, discussed, uh, you know, just how far will this go? Will it end up with the banks, that sort of thing. And uh, around that time, I, I was together actually with an operator that that at the time we wanted to invest with at, at another company who's now Nuvo CEO, Stuart Keller, and was talking with him just over lunch about, about the situation. And uh, it was at a time where he was looking to, to go out on his own. And, and we kind of built the, the structure of our business around what we saw as a, a big problem in, in the market and, and also an opportunity. To Stuart's credit, he, is, uh, he calls it philanthropic private equity in that he's, he's genuinely, and we all do, uh, genuinely wanting to help the syndicator sponsors out there. And I know many of them personally from, from running a, a fund of funds for the last five years. Um, so I, I've talked with all of these guys. They're, they're great people and uh, talented and, and just got really caught off guard with, with um, 
rate hikes here. So we built this structure that essentially we would come in and buy the properties from from the, the existing syndicators, but then write them into our new syndication or new deal um, so that they had an opportunity to return some of the lost capital from from their investment partners. Back to the limited partners? Correct. Correct. So unfortunately, with a lot of these deals that we've looked at, I'll just give an example. If you got an 80% loan to value, uh, and now the cap rates in the market have gone up from 4% to 6%, and that's that's probably being generous, uh, the property's lost about a third of its value. Uh, that, that's a rough rule of thumb. So now the property, even if you had completed some of the CapEx and increased rents, you've already you've lost 33% of the original value. So you have to do an awful lot of CapEx and an awful lot of rent increases to, to make up for that. And so there's not actually equity left in the deal. If you mark to market or if you say, this is my offer price today, it's, it's usually uh, right around where the loan balance is actually at. And sometimes less, sometimes a little bit more. Um, and so what we typically see is, is we, we fully underwrite the deals. We don't really care initially what the loan balance is. It's just coincidence that it, it's ending up around the loan balance is what we would be willing to pay for a property. So there's no equity to, to roll over into our deal. Ideally, what we like to do is when there is some residual equity, we invite the existing sponsor and their, their investment partners to come into the new syndication with better debt, better structure, um, and, and strong operations to be able to recoup even more of the, the lost equity. Uh, but what has happened a number of times now is that the equity is, or excuse me, the equity is gone uh, the purchase prices around the note. And so what, what we're doing at, at Nouveau Capital is actually writing the existing owners, their, their investment partners, their LPs and the, the GP into our deal uh, by giving them a percentage of, of our carry, basically. Because these properties aren't unsalvageable. Like they're not like office, it's multifamily, you know, there's demand for them and they can be, a lot of them are value add, right? That's right. Uh, the majority of what we've seen is, is value add um, where maybe because rates increased, a bigger percentage of the rental income and CapEx budget had to go to servicing the debt as opposed to operating the business plan. Um, so there's operational challenges there and deferred maintenance, but in general, we love multifamily because, as you mentioned or alluded to, people need a place to live. Um, and, and a lot of these deals could be great if the debt wasn't hindering them so much. Um, if it wasn't underwritten with 3% rate assumptions and now the rates are 8 9% on some of these. Um, and so a big part of what we're doing is just – and. I should add here that even if you bought a rate cap in 2020, 2021, and 2022 now, it's either about to expire or will expire in 2024 um, or 2025. So um, even the properties or the operators that, that bought a rate cap because you know, they were just, just being conservative underwriting and, and doing the right thing there um, are still going to be in trouble. And the property can make sense uh, as soon as the debt is right-sized, if you will. Or, or as soon as the um, the basis is taking into account what the new debt terms are. Right. Because once your rate cap expires, you can buy a new one, but it's more expensive right now. And if you're already struggling, it's sort of like another cost that you don't want to take on or maybe can't at all. 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of a perfect storm, really. I mean, you had uh, interest rates going up, taxes and insurance going up tremendously, especially across the Southeast and Belt, uh, Sunbelt, where the majority of, of newer syndicators were operating. Then the lenders will also sometimes force you to set aside escrow, basically, for the new rate cap purchase. So even if your rate cap is 6, 8, 12 months from now, you may be required to set aside what the current price of that rate cap is today in, in monthly installments, basically. And so you're, you're already maybe struggling from, from the operations. Um, and even if you have a rate cap, now you have to set aside a big, big chunk. Uh, I mean, it's not a small amount, 100,000. We, we've seen that, um, you know, six figures that you're setting aside every month for a new rate cap. And so it's, it's kind of uh, ironic, but the, the, in order to preserve the rate cap, you're, it's actually making the, the property underperform or even lose money. And, and you can kind of forget about investor distributions at that point. Every, everything's just being spent to, to secure the debt. So in terms of the deals that you're looking at, how many, like, are there any that can't be worked out that you're sort of passing on? We've, we've passed on, on quite a bit. We're underwriting like, like crazy right now, to be honest. There, there's a, an awful lot of, of properties that need help and a, and a lot of sponsors that we would like to help and, and we're trying to. But it, it also has to make sense for our investors. And so we, we can't really sacrifice that. So we had, I think when we had last spoken, it, we had underwritten around five to 600 uh, million of, of deals. And at that time, it was, it was uh, less than 100 that, that we were you know, interested in. I, I just want to clarify with being interested. You know, they weren't hitting our return metrics. So it's not, I, I wasn't saying that every one of these deals that we don't like is going back to the bank. But with that being said, I don't see a path to them not going back to the bank uh, for, for a number of those properties. Because if we're not interested, it's likely that the operators have, have kind of exhausted other options for preferred equity. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're doing this. There's not a lot of companies that are willing to give you money from, you know, like take, take away from their profits to, to try to make people whole. Um, so it's unique in that sense. And uh, I, I would guess that there will be, we've seen them go back to the bank. Um, there were properties we were working with that that ended up getting foreclosed on while we were working on them. Um, so it really depends on the lender as, as well as their their belief in the current sponsor's ability to write, to make things right or, or right-size the debt uh, in the future. And, and it almost always requires additional capital uh, a capital injection into the property. And if the uh, the current sponsor isn't able to secure additional capital, the lender doesn't have a lot of faith in, in it going forward and they'll start for foreclosure proceedings. So that's that's what we're seeing now. It hasn't been a flood of foreclosures or, or anything like that, but it's definitely happening. And, and also I would add that right now, what we're hearing from the, the lenders is that they're not willing to write down the debt too much since we can't buy it from them for 80 cents on the dollar or 90 cents on the dollar. So as far as the current state of things here in, in October, um, we're, we're not seeing an awful lot of, you know, this, this blood in the streets type thing from the banks. There's, there's, you know, there's, they're still holding strong and believe in the properties and just are waiting for the right operator to come in. 
people are talking almost ad nauseum about this wall of maturities that's happening, CMBS. Some of these deals are securitized. How do you see things, given that so many loans are coming due in the next two years or so, how do you see things shaking out in 2024? You know, you said there's not blood in the streets now, but will there be? Uh, if, if I uh, had to answer, I would say, yeah, the, things are going to get a lot worse before they get better, I'm afraid. Um, from what we're hearing and seeing from from our um, syndicator partners, it seems like a lot of them were really holding out as long as possible, hoping that things would get better. Uh, for instance, that rates would come down or that the market would would kind of right size or that the banks would be willing to help or something along those lines, that just something would come in and make things better. Um, and I think now that reality is kind of setting in that, oh, there, there's really not a good way out of this. And the hands are kind of tied. Uh, if you can't raise additional equity, then you can't save the deal. And and I think that just because of the the sheer volume of loans that were done, bridge loans that were done in 2021 and 2022, we're going to see an awful lot in 2024. And this is readily available loan data that you know you can you can look up and see the maturities that are coming. Um, and I think it's the the sponsors that were able to work something out very early on, maybe even now. Um, it, we may not have passed that tipping point yet where nobody's able to work something out. There is a lot of dry powder, meaning there's a lot of debt funds and, and uh, pref equity funds that are, that are out there saving deals. Uh, but I uh, unfortunately think that the amount of deals that make sense for pref equity is, is actually not. There's, there's a lot that don't make sense. For instance, the pref equity, if you added it to it, if you were able to find someone, the pref equity would actually just make the deal struggle even more. Because it's more... More expensive, right? That's right. That's right. Usually, like now, especially, you, it's double digits returns that the pref equity provider is expecting. I, I've seen as high as 20 to save the debt. And so what that does is put the existing investors even further in the backseat as far as expecting any kind of return in the future. Now, it, it may save the deal. It may and kind of kick the can down the road. But you know what I've what I've discovered in talking with so many operators is that they they're not necessarily even worried about their own. They've already written off their GP stake, any money they had in the deal, and they're trying to save their their limited partners. Uh, a lot of times, it's it's family and friends, uh, you know, their their professional network and and folks that they know, uh, and and that's kind of where the human aspect of this comes in. They're they're trying anything they can to save the people that trusted them, uh, and we're we're trying to help with that. It's just. Um, there's only so much that that we can do. I, I would add th that there's just an awful lot of of newer operators in there that they they maybe had had taken a class or a seminar or something like that to kind of learn how to do this. And and um, it was great when when times were were good and and property values were only going up and rents were increasing. And now that times are not what they were two years ago. The, the message that was being presented to them back then just isn't, isn't accurate. And I would also imagine, and I've reported on this, that if you just take a class or a seminar, you're not as well-versed in how to invest and sort of what happens during a downturn also and how to navigate that. Yeah, I would say that the majority of the information that was out there and you know, leading up to 22, uh, was all about the the returns that you'll make, the the money that you'll make, how to buy a deal, how to find a deal, how to raise money. Um, I don't think there was much education on actual operations uh, and how to um, just operate. I mean, how to asset manage and, and operate. Uh, and it didn't matter so much as cap rates were being compressed 
because the value of the property just went up as, as cap rates were compressed. Um, and now cap rates are expanding, meaning the properties are losing value at the same time that we have all these other headwinds. I just don't, I don't think that a lot of, of people that were getting into this in the last few years really have a plan to right size the property or write it out because they, they weren't necessarily trained on that as part of their you know, initial training or seminar or whatever it may be. Deconstruct is every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking to Frederick Eklund, the Douglas Elliman broker and star of Million Dollar Listing New York, about his new AI tool, Maya. Tune in then.